0: The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all if you feel led to give towards the ministry of lookout mountain presbyterian church we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give from deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 when the lord your god brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Thank you, Mary, for reading God's Word, and we are continuing our study of Deuteronomy. Some may hear what we just read and have questions raised inside their heads and hearts. What's all that about? Oh, yeah, that's the, that's the angry God of the Old Testament I heard of, right? And there's a different God in the New Testament. No, that's not true. Uh, I want to tell you real quick before I pray I just wanna speak to the issue of what's called holy war, which is often used as a criticism against Christianity and God's word. Uh, I wanna tell you first, three things that holy war that you see in the Bible is not, and then a few things that it is. And then we'll be able to dive in together after we pray. First, holy war in the Bible is not ethnic cleansing, okay? Uh, It is not on the basis of race, it is on the basis of ethnicity, is on the basis of worship. Just even look at Rahab. She was not destroyed. She was not of their ethnicity. So it is not ethnic cleansing. It's also not rugged imperialism. Uh, They were asked to destroy and to drive out, but they could not plunder and they could not enslave. That doesn't make the whole situation lighter, but there is a humanness to it as God sends them in. Uh, This is not taking a land that's not theirs. This is not like Russia going into Ukraine and invading land that doesn't belong to them. This land was promised them all the way back to Abraham. And it's also not prescriptive for our own times or our own lands. Uh, Ephesians 6 tells us our battle now with the spirit is is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of the air. Our battle's spiritual now. What holy war is, and I think this is really important, is it is judgment, and it is based on God's justice. And therefore, though we might not be able to swallow it well, it is faithful. Uh, The Canaanites are not worshipers of God. Not only are they false in their pursuit, they're wicked. If you want to get a picture of Canaanite uh, living Later on today, read Leviticus 18. These pagans were dehumanizing and degrading people made in the image of God. Canaanite worship is not only false, but it's immoral, and thus, this is about God's judgment through instruments, His just judgment. It's also, as I mentioned, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. This is God's people's land. Uh, The land belongs to the promised people. And some of you may ask, well, didn't he promise to Abraham that he would bless the nations through him? And this sure doesn't look like blessing. Well, he also promised to Abraham that not all would be blessed, but some would be judged who despised Israel. So in this moment, it's more important to take the land than it is to convert the nations. For from the place of the land, they would be able to draw in the nations. And lastly, uh, this is what holy war is. It's based on a specific mandate of direct revelation. And so if anybody were to say, God told me, or God told us as a country to do holy war, uh, that would not be true because God has not given direct revelation to that end as he has now. What we know absolutely for sure about this text, based on 1 Corinthians 10, 11, is that this was written for our instruction and our warning. That's really clear by Paul. And so let's prepare to be instructed and warned as we apply this passage to our lives. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for your word that we can trust you. We thank you that you are true and just and wise and good and loving. We thank you that we have to wrestle with your word, even places that are hard, and your spirit helps us. So would you come help us and apply this to our lives in in really surprising ways, maybe ways we didn't even see coming this morning. And we pray this in your name. Amen. We are entering the section Deuteronomy 7 through chapter 11. And basically, Deuteronomy 7 through 11 is an exposition, an outworking of what the first commandment means. No other gods. The entire section of Deuteronomy 7 through 11 will deal with no other gods. Loyalty to God. So God may mess with us in these next sections. He may mess with our hearts and our idolatry as you hear the word and the spirit Convicts you. What we see in this text, having dealt with some of those clarifications, the specific aim of this passage is the holiness of God's people and place. And God calls for holiness just as He did for them. He calls us to holiness this morning. And that call is several things. First, it's sure and sovereign. Second, it's cooperative and complete. And last, it's covenantal and caring. You can be sure that God's call to holiness is those three pairs first it's sure and sovereign look at verse one when the lord your god brings you into the land that you are entering into to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you look at verse two when the lord your god gives them over to you notice when the word is when god is going to give them that land it is God's sure, sovereign work to give them this, and he instructs them once they receive the gift that it's their work to cooperate, and we'll get to that in a moment. But here you see also, verse 1, these nations were no, more numerous and mightier than you. This is why it's a sovereign work. Apart from God's delivering hand, they don't have any land to purify, They never would have made it in to drive out. They were not sufficient for the task. These nations would have gobbled them up and ate them alive. This, quite frankly, looks impossible. And God says to them, this is my sovereign work. And what you think's impossible because of my sovereign hand, I'll give you and I'm giving it to you. It is God's work, it is God's achievement. God does for them what they could not possibly do for themselves, and it's the same way with sin. You and I couldn't even be called to holiness if he hadn't rescued us in the first place. The very fact that he calls us to holiness is because he did what was unthinkable to us. What Paul said in Romans 7, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? A a deal worse than the seven nations, sin and death. And the answer is thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our rescue is sure and sovereign, and our holiness is due to God's affection. Look at verse 6, the latter part, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Do you see there the sovereign setting apart, sanctifying them, holy calling for them? It's not because of who they are or what they've done. A preview to next week. Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord sets His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest. God's sovereign calling to them to holiness is because of His affection. He set them apart out of His treasuring them. Their, their call to holiness is based on his sovereign work, his sovereign affection, and their calling to holiness is based on it, that their holiness is absolutely sure. Look again in verse 6. For you are a people holy. Really? I thought they were to become a people holy. Yes, but they are to become what they are. And that's the good news of the gospel. Our call to holiness is to become who we already are. We are not trying to become something, to earn something, to change our status before God, no. Uh, Romans eight says that those he justified, he glorified, not he will glorify as if it's future and conditional, no. If you're justified, you're already as sure as glorified. So the call to the people is based on an absolute assurance that you are holy. And so the call to Christian sanctification is become who you are. Not to be loved, but as one loved. Be who you are. This is Peter takes this up in the second chapter of his letter, of his first letter. He says to them, much like here, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And in the very next verse, he says, and I urge you to abstain from sinful desires. But I thought you said we're royal and holy. We are. But we need to become what we are as we fight against sin. Do you see that with Israel? Their call to holiness is based on the sovereign work and the sure work of God. You do not fight for holiness out of uncertainty. We fight for holiness fully aware of who God has made us, who we never could have been apart from His work. Now, just as for them, for us, second, the call to holiness is cooperative and complete. It's cooperative. First, look at verse 1 and 2 again. When the Lord your God brings you, verse 2, when the Lord your God gives you over to them and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. So you see this, God works and they work. God says, I'm doing the work. You're getting in the land. You're going to have victory because of my sovereign achievement. But you also must do the work to defeat and drive out the enemy. The call to holiness for Israel is cooperative. God works. They work. The sovereign mind of the Lord now places them in a position to cooperate with his agenda. You were rescued. Your your pursuit of any holiness any godliness is not because of you. You've been rescued. You are now working together dependently with God to drive out the enemies that remain. And Israel acted cooperatively as instruments of God's judgment. Israel could not just show up in the land as he drives out the enemies and then say, okay, God, do your thing. We're just going to check out and enjoy the land and hope that you do the work to drive out all the enemies. No. God brings them in so that his people can drive the enemy out. And you wouldn't have a fighting chance if you hadn't been brought in by his power and operating by his power. The call to holiness then is also complete. Notice verse 2. Or or verse 3, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. One of the things people did with other people groups in that day, they'd make political treaties. They'd make covenants. And here's what he's about to say. Here's what this really means. The call to holiness on them is not only cooperative but complete. It has, it's going to have effect politically, socially, and religiously. There's going to be no area of life that the call to holiness does not touch. Politically, no covenants with them. Socially, verse four, or verse three, you should not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. This really is the Old Testament version of 1 Corinthians 6 of not yoking together with unbelievers. This isn't an issue of interracial marriage. That's not forbidden. The issue is harmony in the marriage over which God you love and pledge allegiance to. And so he says, your complete call is to drive them out. Politically, no covenants, no treaties. Socially and familiarly, purity, completeness, no compromise. And then he says, uh, in verse five, "You shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their altars and chop down their Ashram and burn their carved images with fire." It's religious. It's spiritual. The Asherah pole and the sacred stones were actually objects of the fertility cult. And the worship of the Canaanite fertility gods is wicked, immoral, and quite frankly, not for little ears. It was obscene. And he says, wipe it out. Take it out. Don't even be tempted when it comes time for harvest to bow to these false gods. Complete call to holiness, politically, socially, spiritually, not partial, but total. Total. Now, come to us. That was their day. Fast forward to us our battle, our fight, our call to holiness. It is cooperative and it is complete. God's work is always prior to our work, but He calls us to work. That's really important. God's work is always prior to our work, but He absolutely calls us to work. Philippians 2, 11 and 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to God's purpose. Don't you see this verse at work in Deuteronomy 7? I want you to work out what I've worked in. I've given you victory. Now drive out the enemy. Who's working, God or Israel? In your sanctification, in your pursuit of holiness, who's working? God or you? The answer is yes. But God is always prior. His work is always prior. The great theologian John Murray said this, because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God working in us. The more persistently active we are in working, listen, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is God. The more you work, the more you'll be convinced of God's work. So the call to holiness that it's cooperative means you can't be lazy in the Christian life. You can't be partial in the Christian life. You must be vigilant and intentional and active just like the Israelites who went into the land and were told to drive out the people that were in the land he would give them. But just like theirs is cooperative and so is ours, theirs is complete, so is ours. A complete call to holiness for us means we are to reject and resist any world system that pushes us towards sin and wickedness. Our complete call is this, you and I must face the reality of our battle and the ferocity of the fight. It's time to get honest. With how severe the fight is. It's a good day to quote an England general after the coronation of the king. Arthur Wellesley, Duke of Wellington, an English general wise and renowned, said this In a time of war, it is the worst mistake to underestimate your enemy and give them just a little war. You don't underestimate. Because if you do, you'll just fight a a little war. I'm here to tell all of us, the Christian life is no little war. It's what Paul calls a, a good fight. It's a battle. It's fierce. And we have to begin to be honest about the ferocity of the fight. Rocky Balboa, a great theologian, in the first Creed movie, which I am a sucker for a Rocky movie. They're all the same. But I love them. He's training Creed, Adonis, you know, and Apollo's son, and they're training, looking in the mirror. He's just battling through pain and sweat. And Rocky Balboa looks with Creed in the mirror and says, Hey, hey, you see that guy looking back at you? And Adonis is looking at himself and he says, That's the toughest opponent you're ever going to face. That's the Christian message of sanctification. You know, your toughest enemy? It's not outside of you, it's inside of you. It's yourself, your flesh, your heart. Look in the mirror each day and begin to say, That's the toughest opponent I'm going to face today is the opponent of self and sin and the flesh. And you remember, I called you to remember Peter's words, you're a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a chosen people. And then I quoted him saying, dear friends, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires. You know what he said about those sinful desires? Which wage war against your souls. I'm pretty convinced that Peter had this text or text around it in mind as he wrote 1 Peter chapter 2. He's saying the same thing. You're holy. You're set apart. And you're embattled. So fight. Our call is cooperative. Our call is complete. We've already seen it's sovereign and sure. And last, it's covenantal and caring. Look at verse 4. As he gives them the reason for not intermarrying and having their hearts go astray with another religion, it says, for they would turn away from, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods, and then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. You see his reason there for not intermarrying with other religions not compromising it's covenantal and caring it has the next generation in mind that's covenantal thinking and it's caring if you do that the next generation is going to get destroyed he's here to protect us with this call it's like Gandalf when he goes to Bilbo Baggins with the ring and he says Bilbo Baggins I'm not trying to rob you, I'm trying to help you. A lot of us think God's trying to rob us with all this call to holiness. He's not trying to rob us. He's helping us. He's protecting us. He's loving us. He's caring. He's saying, you can avoid destruction. And do you think about in your own life, individually, your call to holiness, do you think about this? How we respond to this call to holiness affects the next generation. That's what he's saying. If you make choices to intermarry, you're going to kill the next generation. The choices and the fight that we have for holiness affects the next generation, and thus it is covenantal. David Kinnaman, in his work, You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith, References a nationwide Barna study. And he says the first factor that will engage millennials at church is as simple as it is in integral, its relationships. When comparing 20 somethings who remained active in their faith beyond high school and 20 somethings who dropped out of church, the key difference was a relationship with someone in the church where they had sincere faith. Not a parent. Not a pastor. The staying power was bumping up against somebody who embraced the call to holiness and the fight and believed it was worth it. That made a difference in the next generation. And here's the truth for the older generation or those who find themselves in the middle or older. When the older generation lacks complete devotion to God, They are volunteering the next generation for complete desertion. Because it doesn't have authenticity, sincerity, and the next generation sniffs that out. When adults make spiritual declarations without devotion, it's no surprise the future spiritual desertion of the next generation Mediocrity rationalized by the older generation spiritually will be institutionalized by the next generation. That's covenantal thinking. Now it's caring also. It's protective, as I mentioned. It's blessing. It's saying, I don't want you to be destroyed. I don't want you to be devastated. I don't want you to be uh, mired in pain and misery. So come do my calling to holiness. Do you realize what sin really does to us? And that God calling us away from it is actually caring for us? Every one of our sinful actions, one writer says, has a suicidal power on the faculties that put that action forth. Stick with me. When you sin with the mind, the sin shrivels the rationality. When you sin with the heart, the sin shrivels the emotions. When you sin with the will, the sin destroys and dissolves your willpower and your self-control. Sin is the suicidal action of the self against itself. God's call to holiness is not mean or harsh. It's caring. He knows what sin does. So the call is covenantal and caring. It's sovereign and sure, cooperative and complete, covenantal and caring. And I want to close with this quote that is in our Further Up and Further In devotional that you can find online after any sermon. This is actually in the table talk section for family conversation. It's a great quote sums up all we've been talking about. Consider the condition of your heart before God rescued you. Your heart was Sauron's Mount Doom, the white witch's winter, Babylon's stronghold. You may have known peace, but it was peace with enemies of God. But then the Holy Spirit beat down the gates of your heart and expelled sin from the throne. And now he's taking his army through all the corners of your life. And until he annihilates every enemy outpost, you will be a man or a woman at war. So don't be surprised when you wake up to war. Don't be surprised if you sometimes feel like death inside, as if everything you've loved needs to be laid in the grave. Don't be surprised if you discover layers of darkness in your flesh you never dreamed possible. Instead, take heart. The war is normal. More than that, it's essential. For battle is an indispensable mark of all who have declared open rebellion against sin and Satan. When you sense the war, welcome to the family. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our sense of being at war. That means we've been delivered and we are to destroy and defeat the enemy. Thank you for that assurance. Thank you for the sovereign work of taking hold of our heart and now calling us to freedom and your call to holiness. Help us fight the good fight for your glory and for the next generation and for our liberty. In Jesus' name, amen.